Uh, I love getting to worship the Lord with you guys. Today we are reading out of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Uh, I'm reading out of the Pew Bibles that's there for you. If you're up in the balcony, it's underneath you. And if you're down on the floor, it is right in front of you on page 909. So it's page 909 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And we have the CSB translation in front of us. Well, I trust you're watching lots of Christmas movies right now. Yeah? Yeah? We, uh, we watch a lot of Christmas movies at the birdhouse. Uh, and in fact, the flu uh, this week, the flu went through our house. And so one by one, all the kids got it. And then yesterday, Meredith got it. And so I'm the only one. I'm the the Highlander of the flu season here in my family, uh, who is left. And, uh, but, but yeah, so I, I was dodging a lot of you this morning, so I'm sorry if we didn't get to shake hands or meet. I am very well sanitized. Uh, however, I didn't want to give you anything, and so I was ducking it. But because of the flu this week in the, our family, we've been watching even more Christmas movies than normal. Has anybody watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special yet this year? Yeah, I love, that is an every year staple at the Bird family house. I love the Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, perhaps the animation hasn't aged well, and some of the jokes just, I have to explain to the child that was a joke. You know, to my children, they're, they're a little, they fall a little bit flat, but the music, the music holds up, and the message does too, when you get to the end, and Linus preaches his sermon, yeah, and Linus gets up on the stage, and he reads this very passage that we are going to be reading today. Uh, I hope I will try to be as clear this morning as Linus is in our passage. Today we get to hear about the first people who received the good news of Christ, uh, the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flocks. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Well, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off, and they found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told." This is the word of the Lord for us today, and it's beautiful. 
Well, let's go down the list of interesting things in this passage. The first, it's declared to shepherds. As you know, we've got a generally pretty good view of shepherds. After all, King David was a shepherd. After all, Jesus is described as the good shepherd. So whatever you do or don't know about shepherds in any region, this region or something else matters little. The Bible all over the place is praising shepherds. King David, a shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd. So it might be surprising to you that in general, shepherds were looked down upon. Shepherds were dirty. They were smelly. They were not highly skilled worker. The requirements necessary to simply scare off animals by clapping loudly and waving your stick at them at night are not high requirements. In fact, shepherds were not allowed to testify in courts at the time because they were just considered to be unsavory people. And these are the people that the angel appears to to testify to first. You recall we talked last week about the wise men. The wise men arrive sometime later, but this message is for the wise men, and it is for the shepherds, and it is for all people, but it is proclaimed here first to these ones. You imagine how Mary feels having just delivered that day. It says, today, this will happen. We talked last week about how the wise men probably show up a good bit after, somewhere before Jesus is two years old, but not immediately. They start traveling uh, when the sign appears, and so they're, they're probably not there at the same time. But these guys show up the very same day. I mean, Mary and Joseph are perhaps still around the manger. I mean, the, the child is there in the manger, they show up immediately, and is this what you wanted, you know, having given birth? <laughs> Do you think Mary, having given birth and exhausted and tired, having done this by herself with no family around since they were traveling far away from their family and since they were in a foreign place and since the place that they were in didn't have any room inside, I mean, can you imagine she's probably giving birth to this child with no help but Joseph? How helpful he is up to speculation. And then a bunch of shepherds arrive to start rejoicing, saying that angels, just like an angel had appeared to Mary, just like Joseph had seen in a vision, angels had appeared to them. But not just one angel, a whole multitude of angels had appeared to them. And these guys were terrified. And rightly so, yeah? I mean, if you're going about your business in the evening and suddenly the skies are illuminated, by a heavenly army, this is what the word hosts always translates to best in Scripture, a whole army of angels appearing in the sky, wouldn't you be te- terrified as well? Uh, early on, when after my children were born and started walking and, you know, we're young children and toddlers, maybe I'm not the best parent, but I had a lot of fun jumping out and scaring them periodically as they were walking down the hallways in our houses. I would, I would have a good time going... You know, and scaring them, and ah, uh, until I made one of them cry one time. <laughs> Who shall remain nameless? That son of mine, uh, and uh, felt bad about it. the The worst part about this, though, was uh, again, I might not be the best parent here. I had taught them something, and then they began to try and jump out and scare me. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really easily caught off guard, largely because my head's always in the clouds. You know, I'm never quite thinking about the thing that I'm doing right at that time. So it's real easy. You don't have to jump out in the middle of the night or at dark. I mean, you can just walk up behind me and put a hand on my shoulder and I'll go, ah, I didn't know anybody else was in the room with me. I was just, just me and my thoughts and whatever I was doing at the time. So they would jump out and scare me and grab me. You know what it's like to be terrified? Yes. 
This is essentially what happens. The angels show up. The shepherds have their plans. Everybody has, the, Herod had his plans. Everyone has their plans. But God has his, and God is always right on time. And this is what it's like when God appears into our lives as well. We're doing whatever it is we're doing, but sometimes our plans are not his plans, and so when he comes in with his, it takes us off guard or it scares us, or we're surprised by this if we're not paying attention to what he is doing. The timing of God is perfect, however. Perhaps by way of a good Christmas illustration or Advent practice at your house, you might try jumping out and scaring a child and saying, that's how the shepherds were. Or not, I may not be the best parent on this one. They were terrified, but the message that came to them from the angel was this, verse 11, today in the city of David, a Savior is born to you who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. He is a Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Luke doesn't waste any time telling exactly what is happening and what's going on in the whole gospel of Luke. There used to be people out there who would say things like, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, Scripture never claimed for him to be God. And most people don't say this anymore because it's absolutely foolish. All over the place in the Gospels, Jesus is claiming to be God and to be one with the Father. And here we have Luke with, with, no, with no, no delay. Luke starts off letting us know this Jesus Christ who was born, he is both the Savior for the people who would save them. He is also the Messiah that is the king who would rule over them in David's line. And furthermore, he is the Lord God, a redeemer, a king, and God himself. That's what the angel proclaims and declares. This is what God's messengers say about Jesus Christ, God himself. And you know what? These, this is good news. He says to them, don't be afraid. Look, we are proclaiming good news. And the good news is for all people. This makes what makes good news even better, that it's good news and that the good news is for you as well as it is for shepherds. And the, angels, or the angel here doesn't just say, here's the good news and declare it. He also provides them with a sign. He says, here's the sign. You're going to go and find a baby lying in a manger, just as we've said. Baby in a manger is an unusual thing. This is not normative. Maybe a baby, you know, in the bottom drawer of the dresser, or maybe a baby in the pack-and-play, but, but a manger is an unusual one. It says, here's, here's the sign. You're going to go, and you're going to find the baby, and you're going to find the baby lying in the manger. Signs are something that God provides all throughout Scripture. You'll recall in the Old Testament, after He makes a covenant with Noah, saying that He will never again flood the earth for the sins of man, He provides a sign of that covenant. And what is the sign? He hangs the bow in the air. The idea is like a bow and arrow. His object of wrath, he hangs up the bow, is what he says. And he says, you're going to see that, and I'm going to see that, and we're all going to remember the promise that I made and the promise that I'll keep. Signs are a visible, physical confirmation or a reminder or a verification of the work and the Word of God. In the Gospel of John, John presents seven signs. They're all the miracles. He says all of these miracles that Jesus does, they are signs so that you can see, so that you can hear, so that you can touch, so that you can taste the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Pharisees are always asking for another sign. Jesus provides many. 
But the Pharisees continue to say, well, just show us one more sign. Show us another sign. But they're not looking for a sign so that they can believe. They're looking for a sign so they can try to debunk and disbelieve. And still he says to them, the sign will be the sign of Jonah. We have signs today for us, given to us by Scripture, that show us a visible, tangible reminder, uh, a demonstration of the work and of the Word of God that He has already done. Baptism is a sign for us. It is not salvation to be baptized, but we are baptized as a visible demonstration and reminder, a symbol, a sign of the life change that God has done, of the decisions that we have made. We have all kinds of signs for us. How about a wedding band? You may not can see it. I've got a small one. How about a wedding band, though? This is not a sign of the work that God did in joining two people together, that joyous work we carry around with us to demonstrate to everybody very visibly that God has done something powerfully and it is a cause for great rejoicing. The wedding band, likewise, a sign of the work and the Word of God. Here also we have a sign, but here in this one spot in Scripture, the work of God and the Word of God and the sign are all God Himself. The tangible, visible reminder of what God is doing is Jesus Christ, who is God and is the Word of God, what God is doing in the world. It all comes together here. This child, God Himself here, is the sign that God has come into the life of His people. And then what do you do when you hear good news like this? You've got to start singing, yes? So this heavenly host, the idea of the heavenly armies, this God of armies, this military display in the sky, even these ones can't stop but to praise God and cry out glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people He favors. This passage is not just for a small group of people. This proclamation is not just for those who find the favor of God. It is for all people, you heard, correct? This is for all people. And yet we have, even within this passage, the truth that not all people will receive this message. The message, the proclamation that God is good goes out to all people. But the ones who receive and enter into His peace are only those who hear and believe it. And yet, this is a great proclamation of peace to anybody. After all, who has God favored? Well, just about everybody who He has sent His Son to. The call is universal, but sadly, the response is not. Yet, now, if you are hearing this, the call goes out to you as well that you may enter into the peace of God today. Finally, the passage says, you know, they're reporting these things to Mary and to Joseph, and everybody who's there hears and is amazed at what God is doing. And the passage says that Mary, Mary treasured these things in her heart. She meditated on these things. I mean, what else do you do? What else is there to do? When God is at work powerfully in your life, when God has worked in your life, what have you done? What else is there to do except rejoice and remember? To rejoice, to treasure these things. 
to let your heart and your life be warmed by the work of God, and then to always remember them. Surely you and I can remember the times in which God has broken into our lives, when God has come into our lives and changed things. Let us remember these times as well. Let us hold on to them and meditate on them and think on these things. Let us treasure these memories and let us rejoice. This passage is beautiful. It will always be beautiful. This is the joy about these Christmas passages. We can have them once a year, every year, this time of year, and it's still a joy to hear them again and again because God is so good and the news is so good. But there are three things about this passage I want to point to you that change the way we live. There are three things that we ought to do based on what's here in this passage. First, you need to understand that we Christians, we think about history different than the rest of the world. Ancient people out there saw time and saw history as essentially circular. Most ancient religions came this way. Everything has happened before. It's all going to happen again like seasons and like a year. Time just kind of keeps going, and the same things happen over and over again. Marcus Aurelius wrote about this, uh, the famous Stoic emperor. But this idea sort of continues, this view of history. It continues in lots of Eastern religions with reincarnation and with cycles happening again and again. All of time, it's happened, it'll happen again, and it goes and it goes. And they, they view history as essentially a circle. But this is not the way Christians view history. To this world of seasons and time and circles, when God reveals Himself, what God reveals in Scripture is that all time and all things had a beginning and that it is all moving somewhere by the work of God. These things have a beginning and they will have an end and go on into eternity. Not only is time not circular, it's a line, but it's a line that is progressing somewhere. There's a purpose behind all of it. God is the one orchestrating it and moving it. So we Christians don't view time as essentially circular, although you do live your life in your seasons. I mean, you you think about this. We had Christmas last year, and we've got Christmas this year, and sometimes it can feel like Groundhog Day in your life if nothing's changing. But we Christians all know everything in our life is moving towards something, and God is moving us towards it. All of time in history are progressing towards the work that God is doing. As the Enlightenment came along, another view of history developed, essentially a post-Christian one, where Hegel, Hegel, he developed the, he took this idea of time progressing, of history progressing, that it wasn't sick. He took these Christian ideas, but he removed the idea of God from it. He didn't believe in God. At least, he didn't believe in God as we believe in God. And so he saw history as progressing towards something and progressing towards something good, but not towards God's plan, and that history wasn't moved along by a God, but rather history was moved along by ideas. There's the status quo, and there's a new idea that comes, they're in conflict, and then there's a new synthesis of the two that's formed. So as ideas come about, as things happen, as nations come about and struggle against each other, all of history for Hegel was moved forward in this way conflict, this one, this one, a conflict in which ends with a synthesis and something new. He still saw it optimistically and progressing, yet there was no God in his history. And so it was progressing, but it was being progressed by or being moved along simply by natural forces. 
Karl Marx further refined this view of history. Marx saw that history was moving along and progressing towards something, and somehow, even without a God, Marx maintained that it was progressing to something good. But what Karl Marx saw history being moved along by was violence and revolution. This is what Marx saw, that there was the status quo, but it needed a revolution to overcome the status quo, and all of it was moving towards something better. There was the time of kings, he saw. Then there was the time of the aristocracy. And now in his life, Marx said, and now it's the time and the age of the common man. The trouble with Marx is he, he... The thing that moves history for him is violent revolution. It means one group of people, since he saw everything as class struggle, it meant one class and one group of people were going to have to get violent against another one in order to win, in order to overcome it. This remains a popular view of history today. There's plenty more views of history out there. There's progressive view of history, but a progressing towards a negative place. And there's certainly plenty of people who preaching doom and gloom on climate, that their view of history is that it's going towards climate catastrophe. It's all progressing and moving somewhere. It's not circular, but it's moving towards something bad. The trouble with all of these things is that they neglect that there is a God at the center of history. I want to address Marx for just a moment on this one. He who saw all history being moved forward by class warfare and class struggle goes completely contrary to the gospel and the joy and the beauty of it. Or I should say that the joy and the beauty of the gospel goes completely contrary to all the ideas of the world. You see, in the way God is moving forward history, there is violence at the center of it. But the violence was done against Christ on our behalf for us. So the proclamation about what God is doing is a proclamation about peace for all people. He cries out to the poor shepherds, peace to all of you and you are welcome into his kingdom. And he cries out to the wealthy magi, peace to you. He cries out to everyone and says, peace to you who are near and you who are far away. And God establishes his kingdom, drawing people to him from every family, from every nation, from every tribe and from every people group. He makes peace. All of history is not moved forward by conflict. It's being moved forward and towards the peace of God where He is drawing us together to be His. Dear congregation, rejoice. Scripture says it this way, Ephesians chapter 2. At one time, you were without Christ, and you were excluded from citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenant of promise. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus has brought you who were far away near by His own blood. For He Himself is our peace. He is the one who took two groups and made them one. He did this that he might reconcile all groups of people into one body through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. There is the central violence at the history of God's plan, but it is the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ for our sins. And even as the wrath of God is poured out on Christ on the cross, 
Christ is the one doing the crucifying that day. He is the one putting to death the hostility between people and creating peace. He came to proclaim the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers. But you are fellow citizens with the rest of the saints. You are now members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And in him the whole building being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are being built together for God's dwelling place in the Spirit. This is the good tiding with great joy. This is the good news for us. Peace is at the center of it all. We have this different view of history. It's that God is moving it towards peace, and he is moving us towards peace. But we also have a different understanding of peace than the rest of the world. You know, at the time in which Christ comes, there is a peace in the world. It's the peace of Rome. They called it the Pax Romana. They were very proud of this at the time. They talked about this Roman peace, how they could build roads and you could travel them without nearly as much fear of being assailed by just random hooligans and people out there. There's a Roman peace. There was a Roman law, and they extended it, and they moved the frontier of war so far away from their home city, from Rome and their home nation, and they kept pushing it back. So they had this peace, a certain kind of Roman peace. But this Roman peace had a, had a heavy weight to it. This wasn't a good peace. This was a terrible peace, the Roman peace. You need to look no further than Scripture to understand that the Roman peace included the Roman ruler Herod. Oh, and he kept the people from rioting, and he kept himself in power, and he made sure there was no violence, but he did it with great violence himself. The peace of Rome is Herod's peace which is the killing of all children under two. This is a terrible peace at a terrible cost. You need look no further than Scripture to see Pilate. Pilate, the Roman ruler, who keeps the peace. After all, there's a big rioting crowd outside. And you know what Pilate's able to do? He's able to pacify the crowds. Look at that. Pilate, an agent of peace, right? You just talk about how great Pilate is. He's able to keep people from rioting. He makes peace, doesn't he? But his peace is made by releasing a murderer to go do more murdering and by crucifying an innocent man in his place. This is a terrible, evil peace with no justice. The peace of Rome was insufficient to all. They could call it peace, but that is not what we think of when we think of peace. The Roman peace was entirely deficient. People talk about peace a lot today, and the focus of lots of peace talk today is about peace with oneself. It's a shaky world out there, and everybody has been shaken up in the last few years, and everybody is looking for a small measure of peace, even if they could just have some inner peace or some peace alone and some peace to themselves. And the world will say, many people will say, you know, you'll be at peace when you can finally express yourself however you want to, you can express however you feel that this individual expression is what you need to be able to do in order to live at peace with yourself. And if you can't do that, then you can't be at peace with yourself and it's going to be doom and gloom for everybody. 
But this peace comes at forcing everybody else to agree with what anybody wants to express themselves of. It's, it's a non-starter. It doesn't work. This peace you're told you can have if you'll only change or mutilate your body in pursuit of how you feel and the inner peace that you want, but it does not come. It cannot come. And nobody ends up living at peace if they're only pursuing their desires and their appetites or whatever whims they have. This is no peace worth having. This is a tyranny, even if it is you yourself who become your own tyrant, or as Scripture says, their God is their stomach. Rather, the peace that we have begins with our peace with Christ where you're not first of all pursuing civil peace, and we're not first of all pursuing an inner peace, although we need all of these things. It's a joy when there is not war in the world, and it's a joy for any nation when they are not currently fighting in a war. It's a joy for a person when they can sleep at night in peace. It's a joy for a family. Oh, God bless that household and that family when the family can have peace within. But all of these are a side effect, and they come after the primary peace that God offers, and that is peace with God. The primary brokenness, after all, is our broken relationship with Him. We are made to be in relationship with God, though we have broken it by our sins, and yet by His coming into the world and His death on the cross, Jesus has made peace with God for all of us. It is through this overflowing of peace that we can find peace elsewhere, that a Christian can live at peace in the world today. The final thing in this passage you'll see is that we are to treasure the work of God above all things. We've got a different view of history, and that is God is pulling it all together, and God is doing His work, and we rejoice at this. And we have this peace in Him And so when we see him work just like Mary, we have nothing to do but to remember and to rejoice. Have you ever had God provide for you in your life miraculously? Has God taken care of you? Has God been near to you even in the most difficult times? Well, I want nothing more than to be able to ask all of you. I just want to hear your stories this morning of how God has delivered and how God has appeared and the work that God has done in your life from bringing you to salvation in the midst of challenges to giving you a family to providing for you in whatever ways. I can only imagine the stories that are around us in this room today of how God has provided and how God has worked. I can't ask today, but perhaps you know what yours are and you should share them today. You should treasure them in your heart like Mary did And you should meditate on them and remember this. You've got a lot of options today about what you're going to decide to meditate on. But I tell you today, what you should meditate on is the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord in our lives. You know, if you don't control yourself, your mind, and your heart, and what you treasure, it might be that you start to treasure other things besides this. If God has provided for you, Are you spending your time thinking about and treasuring all the other things that you wish you had? And if God has provided for you a good wife, are you spending all of your time 
treasuring somebody else's wife? If God has provided for you good, are are we spending all of our time treasuring other things? Let us put away all sin and all sinful desire. Let us ask for forgiveness and instead spend our time just like Mary, treasuring and thinking about and meditating and remembering what Christ has done. This gratitude that we develop when we keep our eyes focused on and remember all of the joy that the Lord has provided, this will change our lives and change whole households. Think today about all the good that God has done for you. You know, I, I've got many, many treasures. Uh, I've got so much to be thankful for. God's provided for me in so many ways. I get to go back and treasure in my heart, you know, many, many friendships that I've had with many of you. I get to treasure in my heart the times where some of us together went and shared the gospel with people on mission trips, just how joyful it was going out and doing the work together. I've got all sorts of treasured memories. There are many of you who I got to baptize, and I treasure that memory, that I got to be a part of the work that God was doing in your life is a great joy for me. I have so much gratitude towards God, and I treasure that uh, if the flu passes and another one doesn't come, uh, next Sunday, I'll get to baptize my two oldest children, Zoe and Sam, who will be, uh, be baptized next Sunday. They've both believed at different times in the last several years, and, uh, and I'm one who's a little slow to baptism. I want to rejoice at a child's salvation, but spend some time discipling them and talking with them about faith and sharing more Scripture and following up over time. And uh, those two have been patiently waiting as I have been watching them grow in the Lord for the last few years, and so now they finally get this these are the sort of memories that we treasure, the things that we get to see that the Lord did, the things that the Lord did through you. Friends, let us treasure these. Turn your attention and your thoughts away from all that you don't have, away from what you covet, and instead treasure how the Lord has provided and what the Lord has done. And in this, we will find cause for great rejoicing. Friends, remember and rejoice, and remember, and rejoice, and remember, and rejoice all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Father God, I thank you that you are so good to us. I thank you that Christ came at just the right time. I thank you that you are the one at great cost to yourself have made us have brought us peace with God. And I pray that we would, like Mary, all be those who believed in you and got to rejoice to see the work that you were doing and that we got to treasure it and rejoice. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship Jesus Christ.